1: Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Here we go again. Every time this market pulls back, like it did this morning, when the Dow was briefly down 168 points, it just scares the heck out of people like you wouldn't believe. And I think some of those fears are a mistake. Hey, first look, just witness how we rebounded today. Dow only closed down just 30 points. S&P declining 0.23%. NASDAQ a little bit heavier, dipping 0.29%. Now, don't get me wrong. It's okay to be concerned. You should always keep a close eye on your stocks. They're not cash. But I think worries about a devastating sell-off lurking just around the corner are indeed overblown. Because there are a lot more benign forces at work in this market, and not many malignant ones that can cause fortunes to be lost in the blink of an eye. First, it's tough to pin this market's decline on anything in particular. That may be the most disconcerting thing about it. Because when you get something like that, many people think it signals that something is indeed wrong. We just haven't figured it out yet. It's like we believe someone knows something that we don't know. And they were selling all kinds of stocks from retail to transports to oil and gas and the banks and, of course, the techs. On top of that, many investors find the market's recent lack of volatility to be disturbing. Today, a very smart money manager, David Swenson, he's the guy who runs Yale's gigantic endowment, gave a talk where he said he finds the minimal volatility profoundly disturbing, profoundly troubling, I should say. That was his actual quote, profoundly troubling. Given the geopolitical tensions he talked about, he used he talked about potential crash. I hate to use that word on the show, okay? Because a crash has so many connotations. But Mr. Swenson, talking about a real bad decline. Now, Swenson's an elder statesman of the business with an excellent track record. He cannot be easily dismissed. Plus, the geopolitical situation is indeed troubling. President Trump just spent the last two days bashing a lot of world leaders for their trade imbalances with our country. And look, whatever you're on trade, that's a pretty undiplomatic approach to take on a trip that was supposed to be about diplomacy. North Korea feels like an accident waiting to happen. I don't see how calling Kim Jong un short and fat will convince him to give up his nukes. Sticks and stones may his, break his bones, but I don't want any thermonuclear war. So maybe this market should be more turbulent. But as I've told you countless times, it's not like there's a ton of money flowing into the market that could be turned off at any given moment. In fact, there's more money flowing out consistently. Uh, and, and that's actually a decent situation for those who choose to stay because it minimizes froth. No hot money is good news, not bad news. Also. Pleasure. Beyond that, investing styles have changed. These days, it feels like most people have adopted something along the lines of my buy and homework approach stocks. Buy them, hold them, but stay close to them to be sure nothing's going wrong that kind of solid shareholder base isn't really conducive to a crash because it's not their instinct to sell, 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 sell. Or the majority just seem to know to buy S&P index funds every year, and they further know not to sell those funds. They go for the long haul. They don't trade in and out of them. I think that's admirable. Long story short, I think that buy and hold attitude is what's really behind the lack of volatility, which is why I view the lack of turbulence as a bit of a positive. Not to second-guess Mr. Swenson, but there's something to be said for a longer-term lack of volatility that has yet to produce a crash, and that's been the situation for ages now. Although, obviously, if we do get a thermonuclear war tomorrow, then buying into today's dip will turn out to be a mistake. But at that point, I think you'll have bigger problems than your portfolio. Second reason why it makes sense to be concerned about this market, Washington specifically the possibility of no tax reform. I've told you time and time again that I don't expect tax reform to happen in any big way. And most CEOs I talk about I just aren't really baking in either. It's not, frankly, it's, it's proven to be unimportant to them. But less than a month ago, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin told us that the markets will indeed crash without tax cuts. Now, we're all hearing about how tax reform is right on the horizon, but the definition of tax reform is all over the place. The president wants a 20% corporate tax rate, come hell or high water. But some Republicans in Congress think it's bad politics to focus so much off the tax cut on businesses Others simply don't want to bust the budget. The leadership keeps telling us there's agreement, but then we hear that the House doesn't want to deep six the state and local tax deduction, even as that seems to be a non starter in the Senate. There are differences over brackets. There are differences over carried interest or, or favorable treatment for hedge funds. There are differences over certain pass through rates. Turns out revising the towel tax code is more complicated. Duh. And it may be trying to rewrite it on this fly over the course of a couple of months unrealistic, and a mistake. This is all starting to sound like the GOP's Obamacare repeal and replace fiasco. And, and, and speak of the devil, to top it all off, some congresspeople now want to bring that repeal and replace issue into the tax bill. Talk about throwing a third rail into the tax talk. If they do fail, and I think they will, we know that Mnuchin has warned us that the market will crash. I don't believe him, but who am I? He's the Treasury Secretary. Third reason to worry, Stocks have moved up a great deal. There was a profound move after earnings season that jacked up many equities. Now, though, nobody's reporting other than a handful of retailers, and it feels like we've run out of positive catalysts, doesn't it? Meanwhile, stocks aren't exactly cheap on a historical basis. We've experienced substantial declines from these levels before. All that said, I remain cautiously optimistic, and I think you need to use these dips, yes, indeed, I know, as buying opportunities. Why? Five reasons. First, apropos of earnings season, the vast majority of these quarters were really good and caused the underlying stocks to roar higher. Now sellers are coming in, I think, just to lock in profits, knowing there might not be anything more, any, let's say, any more real news for another three months. I think it's a silly reason to sell, but it's happening. Second, it's not like this scenario has changed all that dramatically. Longer-term interest rates aren't going higher as they should given how robust the economy is, but I get that. Unless Yale Swenson is right that this really is the calm before the storm, always a possibility, then I just don't see how stocks are going to collapse under their own weight, given the current benign business backdrop. Third, many people are worried because General Electric's getting clubbed. They think there's a bigger read through here. But remember, GE has its own set of self-inflicted company-specific problems. Still, despite what I heard today from GE haters, I don't think she eases another Tycho or a sendan, two notorious debacles that had a lot of negative pin action. Fourth, while Washington may be profoundly dysfunctional, I do think Congress will be able to pass a modest tax cut as a kind of fig leaf to show that they've gotten something done this year. A fig leaf's better than nothing. But again, the market's recent rally has never been about tax reform. Never. So it would make no sense that we crash if tax reform fails. Finally, let's not forget that when stocks really break down, insurgents flock to the rescue or eager companies step up. Qualcomm shares got blasted over its fight with Apple. Then along comes Broadcom with the biggest bid in the history of tech. Buffalo Wild Wings delivers subpar performance, and private equity comes out of the woodwork to buy the whole company. Now, is this enough to make you want to really purchase this dip? Remember, when the buy the dippers come out and the market goes down some more, well, often they get frustrated and they stop buying quickly. So while it might be time to pick up some Apple or some Facebook here and pull back, remember to build your position slowly on the way down. So that way you do not panic if the market keeps declining. Very hard to do, by the way. I did a a monthly call for members of the Plus.com club today where I actually suggested doing some buying, but I was concerned that people won't have the gumption to step up. Sometimes it takes discipline to buy. The bottom line, I'm always telling you to wait for a pullback before you pull the trigger. Well, we may be staring at exactly the pullback you've been waiting for. So don't panic and embrace it. Frank in South Carolina, Frank. Yes, sir. What's up, Frank?
0: I'm calling about our primary utility company in
2: South Carolina, which is the Scanna Company. They built two nuclear power plants, which they basically walked away from and left billions of dollars. The way they financed it was the legislator gave Scana an increase years and years ago to finance it. Now, the legislators approved this. Now, the legislators want to recoup this money for the shareholders and for the people that paid a bill. Yep. If, if this happens, this could bankrupt that
1: stock. I understand you're right. I mean, it's a near 52-week low. All the other ut- utilities are 52-week high. Absolutely no reason, no reason whatsoever to have to stick your head in that particular line. Instead. Let's stay away from it. Let's go to Marsha New York. Marsha. Hi, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for all you teach us. Uh, Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad that you regard the show as a teaching show. A little bit of entertainment, teaching never hurt. What's up? I'm calling about Novacure. In 2015, I bought 100 shares at $27. I spoke to you last month, and you said I should buy more if it goes down $10 below for what I paid. I bought 50 more shares at $16. Right. And it went up, and then in recent weeks, it's been going down. Should I hold? Yes, I want still? you to hold NovaCare. I Novacure, I really genuinely believe, you know, we had Mr. Doyle on, Bill Doyle. I, I, look, I know people whose lives were dramatically extended by this device, and I think you've got to hold on to this. I think it's a very special company. All right, sure, you have to. You have reason to be concerned about stocks, absolutely, but I'm telling you not to panic. I want you to embrace it buy and do the dip, but slowly, and we'll get through this one together. We always do. On oh, man, Money Tonight, is it time to set sail on the region cruise lines? i sit down with the CEO to see if it could be your portfolio's port of call. Then, in this market, I'll tell you what good breath and bad breath can't be solved by Listerine. I'm going off the charts to tell you where you should focus your efforts in this market. And Regeneron has found success treating rare disorders, but the stock has been humbled by recent declines. Can the company get its groove back? I'm going to talk with the CEO. Stick with Kramer. Don't miss a
3: second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets.
1: Talking about the rise of the experiential economy. How millennials would rather pay for experiences rather than things. They're material in a different way. And by experiences, we're talking about events that can be documented on their Instagram account. That's why the younger generation has embraced the cruise industry, and it's why I reiterated my longstanding recommendation for the group at the end of May. Now, within the cruise segment, there's one smaller open and up-and-coming player, and that's Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings, NCLH. It's a stock that's up 10% since our last segment on the industry, not to mention up nearly 30% for the year. Of course, you'd think that Norwegian's third quarter would be seriously harmed by all that horrific, the horrific hurricanes. But when the company reported last week, it delivered a solid 3-cent earnings speed off a buck 83 basis, higher than expected sales, up 11.2 percent year over year. Plus, when you exclude the impact of the hurricane, just 15 cents a share. Management's full-year guidance was pretty robust. So we got to ask, can the stock keep climbing? Let's check in with Frank Del Rio, who's the president and CEO of Norwegian Cruise Lines, to learn more about the quarter and where the company's headed. Mr. Del Rio, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Green, Thank you. Here. Have oh, a seat. Well, you know. That I think above, probably we are the biggest cheerleaders for your industry. You are. We see this happening. We see younger and older going for it. And I
0: want to get your view about why the younger people choose Norwegian, because I know they do. There's so much to do in a cruise ship. Right. Everything from visiting multiple destinations in a seven-day period, casinos, uh, great entertainment, fantastic food. Some of our ships have 25, 27 restaurants. Um, so, uh, great value, by the way. Right. So, you know, millennials, oh, uh, yeah. money's and tight. they care. They're they very value. Money's tight. And so um, it's a great vacation experience. Um, the highest satisfaction scores of any vacation segment is the cruise industry. Really? It's interesting because
1: when we did this linear study at my college uh, for a reunion, it said that, that the most important thing is vacation, That's vacation right. time. And v- many people are going, because
0: you've got unique, activities on yours right you've got a car racing yeah how does it work so about two years ago we were getting ready to inaugurate one of our uh, region seven seas ship, which is a very upscale uh not for millennials for old guys like you and me there you go anyway so my both my grandsons are about 10 years old at the time they wanted an xbox dad uh pops are you gonna have an xbox Yeah. yeah so i said to them what else would you like to see in a cruise ship and they both came up with this idea of a racetrack So now, on Norwegian Joy, imagine this, a thousand foot long, double-decker, eight-turn racetrack, two turns are banked, cantilevered over the side of the vessel, Ten cars racing at 35 miles per hour. I've never had this much fun in my life. I mean, I remember I used to love bumper car. I mean, it's a real deal. Uh, Yes.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously, that's not the goal there is to crash. But, yes, I mean, that sounds like a lot of fun. uh, It's a lot of fun. Now, you have unique destinations. One of them is Cuba. Yeah. And I wanted to be sure that I I know you had some verbiage about it in the conference call. Cuba, even if President Trump is not happy with Cuba, that has not cut down any of the trips to Cuba.
0: Not at all. Look, it's been over 55 years since Cuba was open to the American tourists. Back then, the cruise industry didn't even exist. Right. So now you bring the combination of cruising— um, the, a little bit of the Bahamas. We we, we combine our Havana trips with the Bahamas, and it's fabulous. So uh, the demand for the Cuba vacations are off the charts. The booking curve behaves more like an exotic vacation where people book months and months right. in advance, and the pricing is just. You know, I can't give you a number, but it's just astronomical. It's oh, that's uh, fantastic. one of the most profitable. Uh, uh, itineraries that we have, and now we have up to four percent of our capacity dedicated to Cuba we 're the only uh, uh company of the three big uh, cruise lines where all of our brands have been allowed to go to Cuba oh okay so we 'll have eighty six de- uh, eighty six uh, cruises visiting Cuba uh, among our three uh brands next year, That's so, so we 're excited you yeah, really got that really now excited there was a moment in your
1: com school, I just loved it where you said. And no companies can do this other than a cruise line company. That You could have raised prices. You left money on the table. No one can raise prices
0: anywhere. How are you able to raise prices for something? It's a combination of having a great product and limited supply. Jim, I wish I had more ships today. I mean, that's unbelievable. And um, one of the things about the cruise industry that uh, keeps uh, competitors away, the barriers to entry are high, you can't go to your neighborhood um, uh, shipyard and order a vessel and pick it up tomorrow. It had long lead times. Right. So it's a long lead time business, which is also very good because we have great visibility into the future. Right. You know, people book today for a cruise are going to take six, eight, nine months right. down the road. In fact, I've always said the government should look at the cruise industry as a leading economic indicator. Yes, it should. Because
1: you have to do it in advance. That's, that's absolutely right. right. That's right. Now, uh, you could use a lot more ships to. FOR CHINA, TOO, RIGHT?
0: Uh, I HAVE A GREAT SHIP IN CHINA TODAY. Uh, WE we, uh, INAUGURATE NORWEGIAN JOY uh, IN JUNE. SHE'S PERFORMING uh, VERY, VERY WELL. PROFITABLE, THE FIRST CRUISE LINE EVER TO BE PROFITABLE IN ITS FIRST YEAR IN CHINA and we're going to be much more profitable next year. We keep hearing, that's right, that you have to have a joint venture in China, you have to lose money to
1: be in China. I thought that was extraordinary that you were making money from the get-go.
0: Well, I'll tell you, the uh, my predecessor, my peers, that uh, paved the way, quite mm-hmm. frankly, and I thank them for that. They had been, they'd been they've been there right. eight, nine, ten years, so it was much tougher back then than it is now. But nevertheless, I'm very proud that our company was able to turn a profit and really in only six months of operation because we got there in July 1st. So. Well, you're a fabulous operator, and every one of these companies is, Distinct that there's
1: one for everyone, and I want to really appreciate that you're coming on because this is a great story. That's Frank Del Rio, he's the president and CEO of Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings. Another winner in the segment. There are only three and we you know why. Try getting a ship. You can't stay with Kramer. After this market's incredible run over the last year. Maybe it's time to start asking ourselves if any of the groups leading us higher have gotten less attractive, specifically whether we need to talk about breath. When a group has bad breath, meaning its strength is too narrowly spread across a few winners, not that it needs a pack of Altoids, that can often mean you need to start looking elsewhere for stocks to buy. So tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Rob Marino, who's a brilliant technician who happens to be my colleague at realmoney.com as well as being the publisher of RightViewTrading.com to tackle the question of breath in this market, who's got good breath and who's got bad breath, and where you should focus your efforts in this environment. For example, we know that the tech sector, the XLK, has been red hot. However, Reno says the tech has developed the stock market equivalent of halitosis, with the shrinking number of stocks accounting for an increasing portion of the group's gains. Remember, the tech cohorts surged a few weeks ago when Alphabet, a- uh, Apple, Microsoft, and Intel all reported excellent numbers. Since then, the tech ETF has continued to outperform the S&P 500. But here's the problem. Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Intel account for nearly 40% of the weighting in the XLK, meaning the recent strength has driven much of this move. He's uncomfortable with that. By itself, that wouldn't necessarily be something to really worry about. But Marino also points to the NASDAQ 100, the 100 largest non-financial companies in the NASDAQ composite. Lately, the number of stocks trading above the 50-day moving average in the NAS has been dropping. We never want to see that. That's a textbook case of poor breath, something akin to what I talked about at the top of the show when I said many stocks have been breaking down. In Marino's view, when you see declining participation in the rally, often bodes poorly for the move's sustainability. In other words, Marino thinks the fabulous bull market in tech might be less solid than it seems. So what do you do? As much as I'm a fan of many tech stocks here, and you know that, especially the aforementioned winners and a number of semi-names, you always need to have a diversified portfolio in case any one particular sector gives up the ghost. I've said it before. I'm going to say it a million times more. Diversification is the only free lunch in this business. And if you want to get your cue from the charts in building that diversified portfolio, Marina's got some good ideas. First, you need some energy, he says, with oil back in the mid-50s, even if it pulled back somewhat viciously today and took a lot of the stocks with it. So, take a gander at the daily chart of the Van Eck Vectors oil service ETF. That's the OIH. Everyone is, this is the one, by the way, that's on everybody's computer if you ever want to hear about, about oil and oil service. This is the energy chart Merino favors. Why? Okay, the OIH has been basing, trading sideways in a triangle, uh, triangle pattern under a resistance of 26. The ETF is currently at 24 and change, so it can rally a couple of bucks from here if it will break out above the ceiling. Marino also points to the Vortex indicator, a new one for us people, VTX, a technical tool that uses two oscillators to spot early trend changes. And with Yellow Ash, this thing just made a bullish crossover where the green line goes above the red one at the beginning of the month. Hard to believe given how bad the group act, but we checked it today. Plus, there's the Chaikin money flow, which measures buying and selling pressure, and it's in positive territory. If the OH can just break out above 26 bucks, Marino thinks we're about to see a major move higher in the energy space. That could be related to Saudi Arabia if it happens, but if it happens is the operative term. How about the consumer discretionary space? Here Marino likes what he's seeing in the daily chart of a stock many have given up on, the chart of Starbucks. Which we own for my travel trust. You can follow our moves before we join, before we make them by joining the ActionAlertPlus.com club. Now look at this. This is actually far more compelling than I realized. The stock of the coffee chain has been under pressure for the last six months, and we all know that it's just been a nasty stock to own. But it's been consolidating, according to Marino, in a triangle pattern since August, with the stock stuck below some key levels, uh, including its 200-day moving average. However, Marino notes that last week, Starbucks briefly broke out above the ceiling of resistance and started to fill the big gap down that it made when the stock sold off hard in July. We're speaking about that versus that. While shares have pulled back a bit since then, Marino likes that the moving average convergence divergence, or MACD indicator, there we are, it's a forward-looking indicator, momentum tool, text changes in the stock's trajectory before they happen. has been trending higher. That's big news. And, of course, the chicken money flow, we look at that, it just turned into positive territory. These readings make Marino think that Starbucks' consolidation phase may be over, with the stock finally ready to make a sustained move higher. This despite a recent shade down of the company's long-term growth forecast when it reported recently. For the sake of diversification, you need some health care, too, he says. He likes the chart of Abbott Labs, another charitable trust holding. And from a technical perspective, this is a beautiful picture. Abbott continues to move from the lower left of the chart to the upper right. That's exactly what you want to see. In fact, Marino says it's a picture-perfect uptrend. Stock steadily rising above its 50-day moving average. However... In recent weeks, Abbott has been trading sideways. Okay? Plus, the check in money flow has been stuck around zero. Although it's now started to turn slightly positive. On the other end, the relative strength indicator, or RSI, an important momentum gauge, is giving you some very bullish readings. That's positive. Marino likes that Abbott has made two successful retests of the floor of support Uh, And and he thinks it's poised to break out above the $55.50 ceiling and then resume its long march higher. And I'm glad to see this because my Chapel Trust, we were thinking of just ringing the register. But now I'm going to hold it. When it comes to financials, Marino has, well, he's got some surprising pick here. Oh, I was going to try to hide it because it's really so, well, let's just say it's uh, startling to say the least. Wells Fargo. Just take a look at the weekly chart here. This bank has had more than its share of troubles, which is why the stock is down slightly for the year while the broader sector is rallied 14% over the same period. But Reno sees some technical signs that Wells might be getting ready to normalize, start trading more like the other big center banks, that it, money center banks that it used to. Stock has drifted uh, back down over its 40 week moving average and held there at least so far this week. The moving average convergence divergence has made a bullish crossover. Okay. And the checking money flow has been steadily rising. It's about to break into the, to, uh, the green, I guess we should say. Put it all together, Marino thinks that Wells Fargo, yes, I'm startled here, could be a good catch-up play at the time when the whole banking industry stands to benefit from next month's Fed meeting, where they're widely expected to raise interest rates, instantly making the financials more profitable. Retail? Marino likes the daily chart of Costco, which has recently soared into the stratosphere after a breakout above its 200-day moving average earlier this month. This rally has been powered by strengthening the checking money flow, uh, and, and, the, uh, and Marino believes that the stock is much more upside. This reminds me of Home Depot, by the way, which put a stellar quarter. Finally, you want an industrial here since the industrials are one of the hottest groups in the market. When we checked in with Marino in July, he liked Honeywell's daily chart right as rain. He still does, even though the stock has rallied 8% since that segment. Honeywell's a crane fave with a beautiful chart. The relative strength index, it's just—it's powerful. Uh, tracking above its center line, taking money flow. It's purely impossible in territory, indicating the big boys continue to let up on the stock. Put it all together, and Marino thinks that there's simply no reason for Honeywell's terrific uptrend to change anytime soon. Here's the bottom line: with the breadth in the tech sector deteriorating, you need to start thinking more about the non-tech parts of your portfolio. And remember, you should always have a diversified portfolio. The charts, as interpreted by Bob, suggested Starbucks, Abbott Labs, Wells Fargo, Costco, Honeywell, and the OIH could have more upside. My view Many of these are definitely worth picking out into weakness like the OIH as the market gets hit with what many people see as the long-awaited pullback. Matt in Illinois, Matt. Hello, Kramer. First, I would just like to thank you because I am a millennial investor, and since reading your books and watching your show, I have gotten so excited about
0: investing that I've decided to switch my career path into finance and I am now currently pursuing my master's at Georgetown University. You helped me find my passion, so thank you for
1: that. That is fabulous, Matt. That is really fabulous, I and mean, it's a fabulous school, and I hope you do terrific. Bo- oh, thank you. Bo- thank Hoya you. Saxa, my friend. Hoya Saxa. Hoya Saxa. All right, so I am calling about Kratos
2: Defense and Security Solutions, ticker yep. KTOS. They've been a winner this year, and there's a large amount of insider buying at higher price points than where it is currently trading. Since the quarter three report, it has gotten killed. I'm looking for some guidance. Yeah, Matt, this is just another
1: opportunity. We've been behind this thing the whole way. It periodically trades down like this, and I think you should just buy some. And congratulations, and thank you for the kind words. How about Jackson in Kentucky? Jackson. Hey, Jim. How's it going, man? I am doing fine, friend. How about you? I'm pretty good. I just want to say I love
0: your show, dude. Thank so you. Good word. Thank you. Okay, I'm uh, I'm pretty new to investing. I just bought one share of uh, uh XNET, and uh, basically, I just want to know uh, if you've ever heard of it or if you got any opinions. Well, on you it know, with, uh, look, do you
1: I I don't recommend any Chinese stocks. Other than Alibaba. And I'm not changing my view because Alibaba looks a lot like the financials of American companies even as my friend Herb Greenberg chooses to disagree with me. That's right. I forget anything we've ever agreed on other than some Bula base we had in San Francisco. I think it was in 1999. All right. The breadth of tech is narrowing. That means it's time to look outside the sector. There are some promising charts out there. Remember to always stay diversified, please. Much more money ahead, including my exclusive with the CEO of Regeneron. And you know he was the first guest to ever join me on Mad Money? Dr. Len Slifer. Could the company find a way to regenerate profits after last year's decline? Then after speaking with GE's new CEO this morning on Squawk on the Street, one thing is clear, the company owes us an explanation. Will we get one? Mm. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer.
3: Tomorrow. Kickoff the trading day was squawk on the street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. You Are think you?
1: Amazon's going to come after GE Power? Turbines? Yeah. I'm sure, they'll drop turbins. those out of the sky, it's too. It's bins. Let's get that straight. It, it's it's pronounce bin. it bins. Oh, turbins. Turbins.
3: It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern.
1: the immortal words of Jerry Reed, the country singer who played Snowman in Smoking the Bandit, when you're hot, you're hot. And when you're not, well, you're not. I think he must have been thinking about Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, R-E-G-N, the biopac- biotech best known for ILEA, that's the revolutionary treatment for age-related macular degeneration. Regeneron CEO, Dr. Leonard Schleifer, was one of our first CEOs on the show. I started recommending a stock in 2005. Stock was under five. And boy, was this thing hot, rallying to 543 at its highs earlier this year, giving you a hundredfold gain. Not to mention being up 50% for, uh, for the 2017 at those levels. However, lately the stock's been humbled. So is the group. This one's plummeted over 25% from its peak in June. Why? Well, some of it is because biotech's going out of style on Wall Street. But some of this potential competition comes from Novartis. we got to find out about this. Even the strong quarter of General reported last week, and it was very strong, hasn't been enough to give its shares a, a sustained bounce. So is this an incredible buying opportunity in the stock of a company with an amazing long-term track record? Or should we proceed with caution? Let's take a clip. Look with Dr. Leonard Schleifer. He's the founder, president and CEO of Regeneron Pharmaceuticals to get a better sense of how his company's doing. Dr. Schleifer, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey. Good to see you. Good to see Have you. a how seat.
2: Doing? How are you doing? All
1: right, doctor, I'll tell you something. I don't like calling your company a biotech because there are very few major old line pharmaceuticals that have as many products on the market and in the pipeline. When is it no longer biotech and when is it a major?
2: You know, that is a great question and they sort of morph together. We think when you're really in an innovative space, it's probably biotech. And when you're a little <laughs> bit more mature out there, with a little less innovation, perhaps it's pharma. They'll oh, be a little mad at me now. You know, look
1: at this, uh, uh, Dupixit. This is uh, for serious eczema, but what's amazing it's not just for that. Like many of your drugs, there are a lot of allergic diseases. This thing could have many different uses.
2: You know, it's rare that you get a chance to change the way medicine is practiced. We think Dupixin might be able to change the way you practice medicine as when you're thinking about allergic diseases. Our first indication for the treatment of what we would call moderate to severe eczema, it's out there. It's, we're hearing great things about it. It's selling well. But I think it's just the first of many indications we can get. we got... Terrific asthma data. We're going to try and get it approved uh, there uh, next year. We're looking at nasal
1: polyps. We're looking at food allergies. The food allergies, by the way, when I saw that, when I, I said to myself, that may be the one of the biggest, if not the biggest, unmet need for younger people. This is
2: a huge market. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, On the way over here, I was looking at the history of allergic diseases. It was actually in the 70s, the 1870s, when allergic granitis started picking up, which was the first of the Mm -hmm. allergic diseases. But it was really in the 1980s or so uh, when you started to get the a- asthma epidemic, and then 1990s, all of a sudden, food allergy, when you and I went to, well, when I went to school, there was no <laughs> we peanut. pretty close. There was no peanut, uh, kids were not right, allergic to right. peanuts. Now you can't bring peanuts to school. You can't open them on the plane sometimes. It's really terrible what's going on. So we're trying, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at a lot of food allergies.
1: Now, the immunocolo- the immuno-oncology platform is one that we've never even spoken about, but it's substantial.
2: Yeah, you know, immuno-oncology, it's a big word, but what right. it, we, for your view is what that means, it's trying to get the, your own immune system, your own cells to t- attack and kill cancer, so you don't have to take poisons and have all sorts of terrible side effects and not great efficacy. This is, there's been some great advance by a lot of companies out there. We've got a product that we hope will uh, get to market uh, next year in that space.
1: Wow, that's quick. Uh, skin cancer? Yes, that's wow.
2: for uh, bad skin cancer, what we call cutaneous squamous cell cancer. Oh, my God. No, millennial.
1: I mean, millennials not yet, but older people. You know, yeah. my generation, that is your biggest fear when you go to the dermatologist. Absolutely. Now, Ilya, we should just speak about this. There's a lot of people, I, I don't know, maybe there's some people who just love the stock of Novartis. But to me, uh, the idea that the, somehow the stuff is better than expectations and could really present, as I read Credit Suisse, a competitive threat to regenerate Ilya and wet AMD, I'm not seeing it. Maybe I'm too much of a homer. I don't I don't know. I don't
2: think this is anything near term to worry about. Well, you know, that's kind of you. Um, if you think about Ali, it's a pretty high bar to to take on. Uh, if you, uh, We're going to give probably two million injections of ILEA this year alone in the United States. And they're two years away, at least, from their first injection commercially. And we've got long-term data. We've got vision data. You know, it's funny, in their uh, in their uh, presentation, they sort of forgot what their primary endpoint was. <laughs> their primary endpoint was vision. And in that, while they were not different, so-called not inferior, we were actually numerically higher. Yeah. And, and it's like they forgot that. I think they're a little bit long on enthusiasm and short on data but right now.
1: They love to talk. Right. They're very promotional. Okay. Now, one of the things, probably, I'm saving for the best for last. Okay, so my cardiologist says that everyone in America, if not the world, should be taking your preluent huh. He says that if in five years from now we are gonna see a major difference between those who take it and those who don't because the cholesterol level has to be dramatically lowered for everyone. It is very tough to grade these drugs over a very short per- term period, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and it's a, it's a real complication, uh, frankly, Sorry. in our in our healthcare system. The people who are paying for it, uh, they don't necessarily have the incentive to keep you going 10 years yes, down the road.
1: Right, but, but it's going to be, I mean, look, my guy Ben Lewis is just saying, Jim, I want you on this, but I can't just, the insurance company, no one realizes how great it's gonna be because it's gonna take too long. But it is gonna be life or death for a lot of people.
2: Well, I think it has the uh, potential of really making a difference to a lot of people who have high cholesterol that you can't control with statins. Statins are really good, and if you can take a statin and get your cholesterol really low, that's fine and they're really cheap. But if you can't get there and you've got heart disease and maybe like you, uh, probably
1: it's not a bad alternative. No, it sure isn't. You've done a great job. That's Dr. Leonard Sleifers, the founder, president, CEO of General Pharmaceuticals, perhaps our number one recommendation since we started mad money. We're back in right now. It is time! It's time for the lightning round! It's time for the lightning round! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Da, da, time for the lightning round! We're going to start with Derek in Texas. Derek!
0: My man Kramer, how are you, sir? Yo, yo,
1: I'm good. How about you there, partner?
0: Hey, Bert, I deserve I'm coming to you today with the stock Ultra Clean Holdings. Take a hit after earnings and want to know if you would consider Oh, I like $3. Ultra Clean, but I'll
1: tell you something. If you like Ultra Clean, then you should absolutely love Lamb Research. Ah. Martin Mar- Mar- Nance is always welcome on the show. How about Denise in Minnesota? Denise. yeah, from Ooh. Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes. And don't forget the Super Bowl. That's oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Right. Cool. <laughs> Say, um, my company, um, I'm wondering if Patterson Companies has been punished enough for... No, no, the the dentistry, the only only thing that is even near dentistry that we like right now is Danaher, which has a division that was doing poorly in dental and is now doing well. I'm going to Stephen and Masters, and Stephen! Booyah, Jim. Booyah. My, My question is about Wendy. Wendy's quarter was fine. It's just that I am a devotee right now of McDonald's, and some chart work says that Starbucks is good. I am a little more tempered there. Let's go to Susan in South Carolina. Susan! Hi, Jim.
3: Booyah! Booyah, Susan! So, I love your
1: show, and Thank you. I've done really well with NVIDIA, but what's happening with Aetna? Ah, uh, look, these stocks are up, what I call up stocks. My favorite in the group is United Health. and is terrific. I know some of the people in this group are saying, why do you stick with United Health? I am ecumenical. I like them all. Let's go to Richard, in Ohio. Richard
3: Jim Kramer, Buckeye Booyah to you. I've been with you since Cudlow and Kramer. Never Holy seen? cow,
1: that was forty-seven years ago. They still were using tubes and TVs. What's up? <laughs>
0: yes. Hey, my stock is Ansys, A-N-S-S.
1: You know we like that. We just covered that. Good tech name. Stick with it. Gabe in New Jersey. Gabe.
0: Hey, Jim. How you doing? First not bad, Gabe. Here. How are you? I'm calling about Select Medical Holdings Corporation. No, E-M. the specialty
1: hospitals do not do not make me happy. I think that they're too hit or miss. Let's go to Jeff in Massachusetts. Jeff.
0: Jim, IDEX Corporation plummeted after the last earnings. Humanization of pet stock has
1: come down. Humanization Pets, by the way, and Align Technology, these are two stocks remind me of each other. They're what we call up stocks. IDX, IDXX hardly ever comes down. I think this is your chance to get in. Let's go to Joshua in Nevada. Joshua. Big booyah, Kramer. I had a question regarding company Balzoon. ticker symbol B-Z-U-N. We are all in Valzoon. Last- I should add that when I talk about Alibaba, but we had them there on locally, and I think it's absolutely terrific. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round!
3: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
1: Years ago, when I had the great privilege of meeting the legendary Archbishop Desmond Tutu, I asked this Nobel Peace Prize winner how South Africa was able to get beyond apartheid to build a peaceful new society. His response? He talked to me about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that he chaired, which helped illuminate the sins of apartheid while at the same time letting the country put the past behind them. I mention this because sometimes if you want to move past something really terrible, you need to study and dissect and analyze what went wrong even in the harshest way possible. Which brings me to General Electric. Let me say right up front that I obviously don't think the troubles of a poorly run company are in any way comparable to decades of apartheid in South Africa. I don't want to minimize the importance of Desmond Tutu's real truth and reconciliation commission. There's really no literal comparison, but I do think we can learn from it and apply those lessons to the financial world this morning, I interviewed the new CEO of GE, John Flannery, along with my Squawk on the Street colleagues, David Faber and Carl Quintanilla. And while I'm very interested in his plans for the future, I did want some sort of truth and reconciliation before I'd be willing to recommend the stock even down here. FYI, GE is now 12 points below where it was when the former CEO, Jeff Immel, came on the show and assured us everything's fine saying the company could earn $1.60 per share. At the time, I held up research from some very good analysts who put cells on the stock and were worried about the cash situation. Immelt said the analysts were, and I quote, just wrong his term, and that, I quote, we're going to have a really strong year, a really good year, end quote. That was just nine months ago. And look, this is a huge conglomerate that should be able to forecast at least somewhat within the broadside of a barn about what it might earn. Turns out the negative analysts that ML showed such disdain for were spot on and dead right. Gee, he's not going to earn a buck 60, more like a buck five. There are very serious cash concerns, which is why the company took the <laughs> unbelievable decision to cut its dividend in half and why it's going to have to offload some profitable divisions. Yet, ML told me they were having a really strong year. Believe me, I wanted wanted him to be right, but he couldn't have been more wrong. And when I asked Flannery about it, Flannery dismissed the need for any sort of truth and reconciliation of the past years as beyond important. What matters to him is the future, not the past. Normally, I'm all for that kind of attitude, but as someone who believed that GE was doing much better than it was, I need to know two things. Was the old management misleading us? Or were they misleading themselves? Both are awful, albeit in different ways. Why does this still matter? Because the board of directors signed off on everything. And while the board's being shaken up, some of these old directors are staying, including the lead director, Jack Brennan, the former CEO of Vanguard. Mr. Flannery told us that straight out today. You know what? I'm so tempted just to put GE's whole whole board on the wall of shame. For agreeing to offer $30 billion in buybacks and dividends last year with money the company so desperately needs now. And I and I want to put them up there in that wall of shame for not holding management accountable for its sins. Here's my problem. If we don't try to understand how things went so wrong at GE, if we don't unearth all the accounting issues and the misinformation, or conceivably, conceivably, outright dishonesty that was presented to us. How the heck can we trust this company to get anything right going forward? The shareholders deserve the truth, including yours truly, since we have the misfortune of owning GE for my charitable trust. At the very least, the board owes us an explanation. After all, how can we tell that Flannery's going to fix everything when we don't even know what needs to be fixed? Hence my position on General Electric stock. Until we get some truth, there will be No reconciliation. Today. Home Depot reported a blowout quarter and then once again people sold it down without waiting to hear Carol Tomei and Craig Munier talk about how good it was doing on the conference call. They sent it down on a couple of bucks, even though the comp numbers were fabulous. Sure enough, if they had waited the conference call, they would have heard an unbelievable story. They would not have lost money, they would have been a buyer, not a seller, and they would have watched the stock go higher as it should. Because Home Depot is one hell of a company. Like I said, there's always a market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you. Right here on Mid Money, I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow!